Hey guys, this is Carr. I just wanted to come in and uh, do a quick reading in the spirit of the crypto economy podcast of the recently released Afghanistan papers that the Washington Post was able to leverage out of, I don't know if it was the State Department or who, um, I believe they were using a FOIA request and had a several years long battle. Um, but I know that we have a, a, a lot of listeners who uh, don't have a whole lot of time to read, either if they're truckers or just uh, on the road a lot or, or, or work a lot. Uh, and so I just wanted to offer this as a, a way to absorb these Afghanistan papers that the Washington Post really leveraged for release. Um, the structure of this is I'm going to read the Washington Post article. Within the article, there are a few interviews that are referenced, and I read three of, I think there are four total uh, interviews that are referenced, and I read three of them. The fourth one is, is almost 50 pages long, um, and I just didn't want to create a, a super long episode. Uh, I kind of threw this together last minute on, on a little bit short notice. I saw that the Biting the Bullet guys were going to do uh, an episode on this tonight, uh, so I just figured I would offer the actual straight reading of the article and a few of the interviews. And uh, I, I'm sure you'll find at least the article interesting. And there are some highlighted portions within the interviews and memos that are that are really interesting, too. I wouldn't say that this is anything revelatory, probably particularly for the people that listen to our show on a regular basis. But um, it's still I was pretty shocked to see some of the things that were stated in black and white and how early particularly something from Donald Rumsfeld so with that uh, there's not any special intros I kind of I'm not very good at audio editing so um, it's a it might be a little bit choppy I did it on the first read through and uh, some of this is actual interviews so it's not necessarily uh edited. So it's a little bit difficult to read through. And I'm also not a military, I don't have a military background. So a lot of the, the acronyms and such are, are beyond my, my experience. So uh, take that, take, take that into consideration. I hack through it the best I can. And hopefully this helps you understand the actual article and some of the memos and interviews that it was referencing in a way that you don't have to go actually slog through it and, and, and read them because um, it was, it was rather time consuming. So uh, without any further delay, uh, here is the article and the ensuing memos. The Afghanistan Papers, A Secret History of the War. In a cache of previously unpublished interviews and memos, key insiders reveal what went wrong during the longest armed conflict in U.S. history. This is an article by the Washington Post by journalists Craig Whitlock, Leslie Shapiro, and Armand Amamjame. That's my best guess. For 18 years, America has been at war in Afghanistan. As part of a government project to understand what went wrong, a federal agency interviewed more than 400 people who had a direct role in the conflict. In those interviews, generals, ambassadors, diplomats, and other insiders offered firsthand accounts of the mistakes that have prolonged the war. The full, unsparing remarks and the identities of many of those who made them have never been made public until now. After a three-year legal battle, the Washington Post won release of more than 2,000 pages of lessons learned interviews conducted by the Office of the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. Those interviews revealed that there was no consensus on the war's objectives, let alone how to end the conflict. To augment the previously undisclosed interviews, the Post also obtained hundreds of confidential memos by former Defense Secretary Donald H. Rumsfeld from the National Security Archive, a nonprofit research institute. Known as, quote, snowflakes, the memos are brief instructions or comments that the Pentagon leader dictated to his underlings as the war unfolded. 
Together, the interviews and the Rumsfeld memos reveal a secret, unvarnished history of the conflict and offer new insights into how three presidential administrations have failed for nearly two decades to deliver on their promises to end the war. Below are four revelatory themes from the documents. Year after year, U.S. officials failed to tell the public the truth about the war in Afghanistan. Here's a quote from one of the documents. The strategy became self-validating. Every data point was altered to present the best picture possible. That's by Bob Crowley, retired Army colonel who served as a counterinsurgency advisor at U.S. military headquarters in Kabul from 2013 to 2014. The lessons learned interviews contradict years of public statements by presidents, generals, and diplomats. The interviews make clear that officials issued rosy pronouncements they knew to be false and hid unmistakable evidence the war had become unwinnable. Several of those interviewed described explicit efforts by the U.S. government to deliberately mislead the public in a culture of willful ignorance where bad news and critiques were unwelcome. U.S. and allied officials admitted the mission had no clear strategy and poorly defined objectives. Here's a quote from another document. I have no visibility into who the bad guys are. Donald H. Rumsfeld, U.S. Defense Secretary from 2001 to 2006. At first, the rationale for invading Afghanistan was clear, to destroy al-Qaeda. But once that had been largely accomplished, officials said the mission grew muddled as they began adopting contradictory strategies and unattainable goals. Those running the war said they struggled to answer even basic questions. Who is the enemy? Whom can we count on as allies? And how will we know when we have won? Many years into the war, the United States still did not understand Afghanistan. Here's another quote from a document. We were devoid of a fundamental understanding of Afghanistan. We didn't know what we were doing. That's from Douglas Lute, Army Lieutenant General who served as the White House's Afghanistan war czar under Presidents Bush and Obama, then U.S. Ambassador to NATO from 2013 to 2017. Dozens of U.S. and Afghan officials told interviewers that many of the U.S. policies and initiatives, from training Afghan forces to fighting the thriving opium trade, were destined to fail because they were based on flawed assumptions about a country that they didn't understand. The United States wasted vast sums of money trying to remake Afghanistan and bred corruption in the process. Here's another quote. You just cannot put those amounts of money into a very fragile state and society and not have it fuel corruption. You just can't. That's Ryan Crocker, former U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan. Despite promises to the contrary, the United States engaged in a huge nation-building effort in Afghanistan, drenching the destitute country with more money than it could absorb. There was so much excess that opportunities for bribery, fraud, and corruption became limitless. One U.S. advisor said that at the airbase where he worked, many Afghans reeked of jet fuel because they were smuggling out so much of it to sell on the black market. Okay, this is the first interview referenced in the Washington Post article, and this is Lessons Learned, Record of Interview. LL07, Stabilization in Afghanistan, Strategy and Interventions of the U.S. Government. This was from August 3rd, 2016. David Young is the project lead. And this is on the record. Counterinsurgency Advice and Assist Teams, CAAT, were instituted under McChrystal to serve as a directed telescope to be COMISAF's eyes and ears on the ground to advise and assist commanders at every level in the field and to identify best practices and disseminate them across the country. General Allen changed CAATs to be called the COMISAF Advice and Assist Teams. Mostly contractors started out as about 25 to 30 but grew to over 100, reported directly to the commander, briefed him monthly, and mostly made up of SOF. Everyone was a coin advisor, but most had specialties like PSYOP, etc., 
CAATs ended when ISAF transitioned to RS. This section is highlighted by Washington Post, so it's, in their opinion, important. Truth was rarely welcome on the CAAT. Everyone at ISAF just wanted to hear good news, so bad news was often stifled. There, were more, there was more freedom to share bad news if it was small. We're running over kids with our MRAPs, for example, because those things could be changed with policy directives. But when we tried to air larger strategic concerns about the willingness, capacity, or corruption of the Afghan government, it was clear it wasn't welcome and the boss wouldn't like it. That's the end of that first highlighted portion. There were lots of turf wars at the operational level between USAID and DOD. USAID officials would often tell the battle space owner, I don't work for you. And the BSO would ignore state and USAID and treat them as irrelevant contributors, especially if the BSO refused to implement COIN. The strategy was ineffective because it was never implemented consistently. Commanders were regularly throwing out their predecessors' plans and priorities, even when both embraced COIN, which many CDRs didn't. Many BDE and BN CDRs were still focused on, quote, move with close and destroy the enemy. I don't know what that means. This next portion is highlighted. There were a number of faulty assumptions in the strategy. Afghanistan is ready for democracy overnight. The population will support the government in a short time. More of everything is better. That's the end of that highlighted portion. We went too fast, and that's why we wound up with corruption. Next time, we should provide more oversight and not rush to democracy. The Afghan government was the largest source of instability because of corruption. Unless the population is convinced the government will support and protect them indefinitely, counterinsurgency and stabilization won't work. In brackets, see inside the Green Beret. You've got to start with the protection, and it has to be genuine, a real inkblot, not a clearing operation followed by ISAF or ANSF visiting once a month. Clear hold build assumes holding is possible, but we did a horrible job holding because there were not enough ANSF, and those that were available were not effective. Stabilization may have occasionally helped, but all that could win the day was permanently security presence. What community would denounce the Taliban in exchange for a school if they only see ANSF once a month? Even if they do support the government as a result of the school, they can't act on it because their lives would be in danger. And I never knew, I never saw a new school or a series of trainings changing that. One time USAID wanted a staff... Oh, that's redacted. Wanted to staff a redacted. And the local DST told them that there was no BHC and USAID refused to believe them because they saw on a spreadsheet in front of them in Kabul that the BHC had been built. But we went to the location with our GPS and told them there's nothing there. They still wouldn't believe us. With stories like that, it's clear how the strategy became self-validating. Here is highlighted. Every data point was altered to present the best picture possible. Surveys, for instance, were totally unreliable, but reinforced that everything we were doing was right and we became a self-licking ice cream cone. End of the highlighted portion. This continued long after the surge troops were in, so it wasn't to justify more troops. When stab was over and transition had completed, aid often vetoed worthy CERP projects because it didn't conform to their 30-year plans. They were pretending stabilization had been effective enough to actually transition to long-term development. They said that these CERP projects weren't sustainable, which was sometimes true, but not always. BNCDRs couldn't even find out what aid projects were taking place in their AO. The USAID reps at the PRTs and DSTs were focused on coordinating CERP projects. 
So even they didn't have the visibility of the national aid program, which made it hard to know when an area was getting too much or too little of one kind of aid. Then at the bottom it says talk to colon and then redacted. Okay, this is the third article referenced in the uh, Washington Post article. Um, this is lessons learned record of interview LL01D5 interview with Ambassador Douglas Lute, NATO permanent rep, former director, Iraq, Afghanistan, NSC 2007-2014. This interview took place on February 20th, 2015. Um, and this is not on the record, apparently. I don't know what the legal distinction is there, if any, uh, but here we go. Lessons learned programs. An effective lessons learned program would be organic. If done from outside, it would generate antibodies, but nonetheless, it's still a worthwhile effort. NSC organizational processes. I did not have a lot of direct interaction with the NSC. My perspective from 2004 to 2007 is through CENTCOM and then the J3. The J3 typically does not attend NSC meetings. CENTCOM is invited on a case-by-case -case basis. I would say until 2007, I had no direct interaction with the NSC. I had seen the, quote, convener role of NSC from my seat on the joint staff prior, but before my prominent role as, quote, director, I didn't have a view onto NSC processes. NSC took direction from DOD within joint staff. From 2004 to 2007, during the Rumsfeld years, there was a tight leash on DOD. This coincides with my, quote, outside years. There was no huge role for the NSC at that point except for the PCs. In 2006, big moves were made. There were the elections, Rumsfeld transitioned to Gates, and Petraeus took command in Iraq. In 2007, Hadley convinces the president that the NSC needs a bigger role. And this next portion is highlighted. He needed a deputy to focus on Iraq and Afghanistan, whose attention would break down to about 85% on Iraq and 15% on Afghanistan, or maybe even 90% attention on Iraq and 10% attention on Afghanistan. This reflects the weight of effort regarding troop numbers. In 2007, Afghanistan was viewed as an, quote, economy of force. In other words, a secondary effort. And that's the end of the highlighted portion. The scheme was to hire someone who knew the two conflicts and could relieve Hadley of the daily duties of advising the NSC. There was not much of the sense of strategy in the military sense, ways, means, and ends, but obviously there was a sense of policy. That's what the NSC does. However, there was not attention given to goals, methods, and resources, which is essentially what strategy is. The only professional group that does real strategy is the military. From that perspective, it's not hard to see where to contribute. Why should we have the expectation from outside the military that leadership knows how to do strategy? Hadley is a corporate lawyer. He is not schooled in policy. Susan Rice, Donalon, they are not schooled in this. Maybe they have some experience in policy, but definitely not strategy. Therefore, there is a heavy burden on the military for st strategy development. It was not a rational process that determined the NSC needed a strategist. It felt like it happened randomly on a Tuesday. But there was a structural gap. There were two wars going on, and we didn't have anyone speaking strategically. There was a gap or a void in trying to connect ends, ways, and means. This is another subheader. Resource reviews and strategy. The resource reviews come from a... Klausowitzian strategic logic of ends, ways, and means. Strategy is the initial alignment of what you want to achieve, goals or ends. The NSC is good at this part of the policy. There is a healthy paragraph outlining goals in Afghanistan. The ends part is outlined by presidential directives, rhetoric, speeches. But below this, the trilogy of 
the trilogy or chain tends to get weaker. As for ways, there is only a casual appreciation of how to deal with this part of the equation. There is an overemphasis on the military, an overappreciation of the military, and an underappreciation of policy, diplomacy, and development. These are all considered secondary to the primacy of military ways. This begins to fracture or erode strategy. We came to this realization late, parentheses, i.e. Obama speech on the hammer nail. Given what you are trying to achieve and how is where resources and resource reviews come in, but no one is tallying up the bill. If you over-rely on the military, there tends to be a fixation on troop numbers. It's as if the only dial in the engine room is troop numbers. Resource reviews discovered what other resources are in hand, and sometimes there are glaring findings. AID, for instance, was under-executing by more than half of its appropriations. There was a huge bubble in the pipeline, and they couldn't catch up. The thought is that if we don't spend, GAO or committees on the Hill will stop us from getting more funding. This lends to spend, spend, spend. The reason this is happening, no one is paying attention in an interagency sense to resources. The military, for instance, has over $1 billion in CERP money, but does not at all coordinate with AID, and no one can account for it. It was funny money. Classic case. You go to a PRT, and they are almost completely reliant on CERP. There would be a state guy at the PRT totally out of his element saying, quote, no one pays any attention to me. There was a distorted view of development because of the over-reliance on the military. Development objectives take on short-term horizons to fit the military short-term horizons when development really needs long-term horizons. Coast Gardez Road. There was criminal infiltration and the Taliban were making money on the fact that the road was never going to be completed. PRT commanders were flooding money into it, one-year money to no result. Resource reviews showed us that if you only focused on the ends and ways, then there is no strategy. You are missing the means or the resources. But they don't get down to strategy, parentheses, where the money meets the road. Because you don't have a strategy. The military gets this, tactical level. Don't try to achieve something without the resources for it. Look at the bias for NSA advisors, except for Powell. You shouldn't expect them to come as a strategic advisors because they don't have that sort of background. This shouldn't be a surprise. I bumped into an even more fundamental lack of knowledge, and this is highlighted by Washington Post. We were devoid of a fundamental understanding of Afghanistan. We didn't even know what we were doing. And that's the end of that highlighted portion. What are the demographics of the country? The economic drivers? AID? Really? We're going to do something in Afghanistan with $10 billion? Haiti is a small country in our own backyard with no extremist insurgency, and we can't develop it. And we expect to develop Afghanistan with $10 billion? Where we have the Pashtuns, a nation with no nation state, with 60% living in Pakistan, and this portion is, is highlighted by Washington Post, what are we trying to do here? We didn't have the foggiest notion of what we were undertaking. We never would have tolerated rosy goal statements if we understood, and this didn't really start happening until Obama. For example, the economy. We stated that our goal is to establish a flourishing market economy. I thought we should have spe specified a flourishing drug trade. This is the only part of the market that's working. It's really much worse than you think. There's a fundamental gap of understanding on the front end, overstated objectives, and over-reliance on the military, and a lack of understanding of the resources necessary. This, that's the end of that highlighted portion. DOD's budget is roughly $120 billion a year, which would include about a million dollars per year per soldier. That means approximately $100 billion per year on soldiers alone. Do we really need the did we really need the Burger King's gyms bottled water shipped over to the Arabian sea, over the Arabian Sea? 
DOD's budget to build ANSF in 2010-2011 or 2011-2012 was the single largest item in the budget. It even exceeded the Joint Strike Fighter budget for two years. They were spending over $10 billion each year that was appropriated at $12 billion. And they realized they couldn't spend it all and they had to give back $1 billion. We can't just show, shovel one-year money at this problem. You can't build the ANSF that fast. This portion is highlighted by Washington Post. We were also pouring money into huge infrastructure projects to obligate money that was appropriated to show we could spend it. That's the end of that highlighted portion. And we were building infrastructure in ways that Afghanistan could never sustain or even use in some cases. This is another highlighted portion. One poignant example of this is a ribbon-cutting ceremony complete with the giant scissors I attended for the district police chief in some godforsaken province. It was a USACE-completed building with a glass facade and an atrium. The police chief couldn't even open the door. He had never seen a doorknob like this. To me, this encapsulates the whole experience in Afghanistan. That's the end of that highlighted portion. In terms of appropriations, Congress appropriated what the administration asked for. Another highlighted portion. This had the distorting effect of having to support the troops. If you don't understand how ends, ways, and means fit together, parentheses, or maybe they don't even make sense in the first place, the simplest thing to do is to support the troops or support the Afghan troops so we can leave. That's the end of that highlighted portion. I didn't see a lot of staff probing deeper. I mean, look who mans the staff committees. Not strategists, but budgeters. We don't have a cross-government structure that is really focused on strategy. Another highlighted portion. Once in a while, okay, we can overspend. We're a rich country and can pour money down a hole and it doesn't bust the bank. But should we? Can't we get a bit more rational about this? End of the highlighted portion. Here's why not. Because of the bureaucratic burdens between the different players. State, AID, and DOD are the big three and, and the sorts of organizational changes necessary to mandate that they were more rational on strategic questions of war won't be done from the bottom up. A lessons learned project won't break down barriers because these bureaucratic barriers are too strong. DOD's own barriers were only broken down by Vietnam through Goldwater Nichols. You need law to mandate reform, which is in this case broke down to broke down the bureaucratic stovepipe approach used in Vietnam. And this dealt only with the internal issues of one of the biggest players. We need a solution across the biggest players. With something like a Goldwater Nichols two, the problem would entail Congress reforming itself, particularly the committee structures in Congress. And this is another highlighted portion by Washington Post. If the American people knew the magnitude of this dysfunction, 2,400 lives lost, who will say this is in vain? End of that highlighted portion. Keep in mind now that it's highly political season here. The notion of being harshly introspective will be next to politically impossible. Maybe with a little more time and perspective, it will not be as politicized. The military is the most culturally introspective organization. Still, they tend to do this at the lowest level, the tactical level. But don't do this as we move up the chain. Bulger's report was two-thirds about how the troops did tactically. The 2014 withdrawal date was first announced in Karzai's inaugural speech in 2009. Spanta gave the speech to Karzai after Eikenberry added the statement that by the end of my, Karzai's, term, we, Afghans, should be fully responsible for our country through ANSF, which translates to 2014. At the NATO summit in Lisbon in 2010, a huge topic is Afghanistan, which is NATO's largest military operation. NATO takes note of Karzai's inauguration statement and write his statement into NATO's communique. 
Karzai couldn't refute it because he had, in more or less words, made the statement, and this gave the coalition a horizon to aim for. To move a big coalition, you need two things, resources and a calendar. Obama had been setting strategic markers and endpoints on the calendar for achieving ends. This gave us a window to end or wrap up building ANSF. This was an opportunity to plant the flag, creating a closer horizon. Why not? Karzai had already said it. This focused DOD on the task at hand, building ANSF. There was an overemphasis on doing the military effort ourselves. We were predominantly doing it ourselves and discounting Afghan capacity and means. There was an under-resourced advisory effort for the ANSF for years. So this planted the flag and forced DOD to build the ANSF as a priority. I'd say it worked, mostly. The NATO-Lisbon communique stated that beyond 2014, NATO accepts and Afghanistan welcomes continuing efforts at one-tenth the current size, which is now resolute support. In Chicago, we arrived at another benchmark, a date to transition to a non-combat mission. The problem is that in the meantime, we had surged, and this portion is the final portion of the article and highlighted by Washington Post. A fundamental impact of the surge was to westernize the fight. We committed to do it ourselves, not through Afghans. So who was going to do the advisory effort? We economized. We got the ANSF we deserve. If we started with ANSF in 2002 to 2006 when the Taliban was weak and disorganized, things may have been different. Instead, we went to Iraq. If we committed money deliberately and sooner, we could have had a different outcome. That's the end of that article. All right, and that's it. That's the Washington Post article um, and three interviews uh, within it. Um, hopefully you got uh, some value out of that, and, and if you did, let me know, and, and maybe I'll do a little bit more of this, uh, of just reading of articles and stuff like that so that you don't have to go read them because a lot of times they're super boring. Uh, go listen to Biting the Bullet. I know that they're going to be releasing this episode uh, either tonight or tomorrow. Today's December 13th, Friday, so it's probably sometime this weekend. They have direct direct experience. They're all military, and uh, and the mongoose, Jared, uh, was, was actually deployed there. Although I will note, and maybe he can go into further detail, that I think he was there on the ground probably much later than a lot of these uh, interviews um, uh, came out. So that'll be interesting to see. Um, what his experiences are versus what is mentioned in the in the article in the interviews. Um, you know, it's easy to have a pretty big time differential when you're in a place for two decades. So, um, anyway, that's uh, that's that, and uh, and I guess keep uh, two hands on the MRAP. <laughs>